Welcome to episode 46 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about embroidery as an art form with my guest, Rebecca Rinquist. Rebecca is a Brooklyn-based visual artist and designer. Approaching the technique of embroidery as a way of drawing, Rebecca has taught hundreds of people new ways of making marks on fabric with thread. Rebecca has a design company called Drop Cloth, where she sells hand-drawn designs and samplers that are pre-printed as embroidery patterns, ready to hoop and sew. Rebecca earned her MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she subsequently taught for seven years. She now teaches lectures and exhibits internationally. Rebecca Rinquist, welcome. Thank you. So excited to chat with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I want to start actually with the present moment because um, you've got some exciting news. You've written a book. And yeah, yeah, it's called Rebecca Rinquist's Embroidery Workshops, uh, Bend the Rules Sewing Primer. And it's published by STC Craft Melanie Fallick Books and is coming out really soon. Um, I have a digital copy of it and I've been pouring over it over the weekend and it's just unbelievably gorgeous. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So I'm curious about how this book came about. Was writing a book on, you know, your long-term goal list or, you know, did you pitch this book or was this something where Melanie kind of saw your work and came to you? Um, a lot of questions. So, uh, I wasn't on my long-term goal list. Um, I moved to New York, um, four years ago, a little more than four years ago and sort of transitioned from teaching in an academic setting to, something totally new. I kind of jumped off the um, platform into New York and started teaching uh, Creative Bug. And that's how I met Melanie. Um, And so it's sort of in this transitional period in my life is really focusing on my business and teaching workshops, going from teaching um, semester classes to workshop-based classes. And so that's sort of how the book came about, is thinking about how we could include, how I could translate the information that I include in workshops into a book format. I see. Okay, right, because you were teaching kind of college-level classes pr- prior to then. Right. And so when you structure a long class like that, that's going to take place over a semester, you have all this time to kind of build and for students to probably explore technique and then apply that to their own sort of independent project is how I'm imagining it. Is that kind of, kind mm-hmm. of right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then when you do a workshop, it's more like a three-hour, four-hour experience where you're going to come in and you know, learn a couple of basics in the beginning and maybe do kind of a pre-planned project or a project that has some, you know, ability for you to customize it, but is, is in some ways also something that you've already set up. Some, yeah, yes, I do teach workshops like that. Primarily those workshops that are really short like that are based on samplers or based on a, a very quick project such as some of the projects that are in the book. I also teach longer one or two week workshops that are sort of an intense um, version of a semester class where we're together, you know, nonstop for two weeks, making more involved projects. Um, Yeah. So the workshops take a a few different formats. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I feel like there's a bridge there between art and craft. I mean, um, I'm not really sure where embroidery falls. I think embroidery maybe falls in, in sort of traditionally or in people's minds when they first think of embroidery, they, they think of it as craft. Mm-hmm. Um, but you very much are an artist. And I think, um, you know, in the semester long classes that you were teaching, you were teaching art students. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workshop classes, the longer ones maybe are, are sort of a mix and maybe the shorter ones are, are craft focused. And this book is also kind of, would appeal to both artists and crafters, but is, is maybe more in the craft realm than in the fine art realm. And I just wonder how you feel about that, that line between art and craft that you sort of cross. Yeah, I've been teaching sort of in both realms for a long time. And even when I was teaching at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, I was an adjunct professor there. So I was also teaching at a craft um, uh, school in our craft uh, center and, uh, you know, it's sort of a community arts center in Chicago where I was teaching, you know, doctors and lawyers and 
moms and and people that went to art school but were taking classes for fun because they were now doing something unrelated and so I really love kind of teaching a, a whole mix of people um, and being sort of in both worlds and I think sometimes I often found that the at the um, community art center where I taught people were more willing to sort of experiment and um, make mistakes and just kind of dive in head first. I think partly because those people were just so excited to work with their hands and make things because as adults, we spend so much time on the computer. Um, whereas I find, I often found that art students were really hung up on, we get really hung up on ideas and not be so excited about um, just kind of diving in and experimenting with materials. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, that, that, that being a professional artist is a, a career choice, but that, but that art is something that's available to everyone. And, uh, you know, some people choose to do it in a professional way and, and a skill that we can build up and just like learning how to become a, a scientist or a doctor or something. You learn how and take classes and become proficient at something. But I think that that art is something that, that is available to everyone and anyone can have a, have a go at and try. And they're all different kinds of artists. Right. Right. And so craft is, you know, it it fits right in there. I mean, I feel like these words are sort of dividing, but they, Mm -hmm. they really, it it doesn't really refer to one thing in particular or another. Um, it's blurry, you know, the line is blurry. Um, and between all of the different things that you do, I feel like that line is definitely blurry. So, um, and it's refreshing to hear that, you know, people who maybe are approaching it in more of a shorter term, kind of let me try this way are more likely to dive in and sort of be like, well, you know, I don't really know how to do this. So if it comes out terribly, well, it's okay because I'm a first timer. Right. And I think that embroidery is such a forgiving art form as well. You know, it's a bit, it's a lot like drawing and, you know, but unlike drawing with a permanent marker, you know, you could always pull your threads out or stitch over the top of them. And, um, it has embroidery has a really uptight reputation, but I'm, I'm trying to transform it into something that's a lot more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that because, um, uh, I feel like, you know, I've read a lot of embroidery books and reviewed lots of embroidery books and <laughs> your book is totally different. Your approach is really different. I think most embroidery books that I've uh, encountered in the past have motifs that are designs that you can stitch. And, you know, they might be representational, they might be abstract, but they are, uh, you know, at least some portion of the book is made up of pages of motifs for you to trace and stitch. And you really see embroidery as a way of drawing and of making a mark. And I almost feel like um, you're also doing a lot with found fabrics, like vintage uh, linens Mm -hmm. that are already embroidered or ribbons that already have pattern and combining things that already have imagery and then stitching on top of those things. Yes. I think I definitely have a sort of maximalist aesthetic. I'm really drawn to things that are really colorful and densely patterned. And, and I think that a lot of times in workshops, you know, people will say like, I'm not sure how to get started. And they'll, you know, white piece of fabric or just like drawing on a white piece of paper. It's so perfect. And it's like, what could I add to this? It's already so, so it's, you know, there's nothing on it. So there's a lot, it can be intimidating. But if you have a piece of fabric that already has a pattern on it or already has some embroidery on it, I think there's, um, it can be less intimidating and, and more fun to sort of dive in and add to what's already there. When there's something to respond to, it can be easier to get started. Yeah, it is, it is such a cool thing. And when I was reading the book, I was, I have tons of, um, you know, thrift store hankies and oh, yeah. cloth napkins that are embroidered. And I, you know, squirrel them away. People give them to me and I find them places. And then I'm like, well, I'll just keep this because it's pretty and this little corner is embroidered and I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do with it. And it totally made me want to, it gave me the freedom to sort of say, well, just cut that part out and, you know, stitch it onto something else and then stitch on top of it or react to it. Um, which I just was like, Oh, that 
that said I could do it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm so happy that you're having that response to the book. That makes me so excited. Yeah. That's so neat. Yeah. So when you're going, I know, um, you, you have said that you don't do a ton of thrifting now that you are in New York because you have such a huge collection from where you were, you were living in the Midwest prior to moving. Yes. I was living in Chicago for 12 years and Chicago has like the, so many amazing thrift stores. And, um, yeah, so I collected boxes and boxes and probably moved way too much stuff to New York. (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering what you were looking for when you go out thrifting, because, you know, sometimes you go thrifting and you just get kind of lost and you're not really sure like which of these things is actually going to be something I'm going to want to make something with, um, you know, and, and how much should I pay for this and that kind of thing. So, so Mm. tell us a little bit, like some tips for, you know, going to a thrift store and picking out some things that can later become art materials. Okay. Oh, this is really fun. I love, I, this is a dream of mine to be interviewed about thrifting. It's my (laughs) favorite activity, which I don't get to do very often anymore. Um, so the one great, you know, the, the department that I always head to first at thrift stores is the, is sometimes called linens or home textiles, or, you know, it's the department that has sheets and towels. And oftentimes in there, you'll find, um, you know, pillowcases. There are hundreds of pillowcases that they might be kind of yellow and gross from somebody's head sleeping on it, but the embroidery is usually just on the end, the part that the, the opening part of the pillow. And so the opening part of the pillowcase, there's often really beautiful embroidery there and the gross yellow part of the pillow just gets cut off and discarded and that embroidery is good to go. Um, a lot of times there's beautiful handkerchiefs, um, um, uh, tablecloths and the tablecloth might have a giant stain on it, which may, might make it less expensive. Um, but the embroidery is on the edge a lot of the time, so it doesn't matter. Um, sometimes also it might be a stain and you might be able to, you know, soak it out with OxyClean and a nice, you know, hang it up on the clothesline outside. I feel like sunshine and OxyClean do wonders to get stains out of old textiles. Um, and then lately I've been really interested in collecting, um, embroideries that are not on white fabrics that most of the embroidery that you'll find will be on white fabric, um, because it was made with iron on transfers that transfer really readily and easily onto white fabrics. Um, but there are a lot of really fun embroidered things in the clothing section too. Um, often they're hand, the, often they're machine embroidered, but sometimes you can find hand embroidered things, um, on a jacket or a, a t-shirt or, a, a, you know, uh, all, all different kinds of clothing. So that can be a good place to look. And sometimes, so I think thrift stores are a good place to look because they're the least expensive, um, if you go looking for things at stores that are called antique stores, it will probably cost more for the same type of thing. Um, I, in Chicago, shout out to Chicago listeners, the, I found the best things at the Village Discount Outlets at that chain of thrift stores. But I've also found great things at you know, Goodwills and Salvation Armies. And a lot of times those stores have half-off um, colored tags, you know, so everything that has a green tag will be half off on Mondays or something. Um, right. So, so yeah, I'm curious well, when you get, when you get some of these things home, like the pillowcases, for example, where, you know, the majority of the fabric on this piece, I'm going to throw away. Yeah. Um, do you go ahead and cut that off and throw that part away right away? Or do you save the whole thing? So, you know, down the road, well, I need a piece that's going to be about this size. And, you know, so, I mean, are, are you sort of processing, like, I'm clearly, I think you're probably washing things right away, but exactly. are you kind of processing them as well, like cutting them up as well? Um, yeah, the first thing I do is wash it in hot water with detergent, um, just to get any gross stuff out of it. Um, and then sometimes, yeah, if it has an obvious, um, uh, you know, piece that is gross and yellow or, or, um, stained or something, I would cut that off. Um, and then, uh, you, you, I'm, 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 I'm not the most organized person. I am in certain ways, but my fabric is, is not the most organized. I have you know, big, uh, you know, see-through Rubbermaid tubs full of bound, 
quote unquote found embroidery things that I've collected and just boxes and boxes. So, um, you know, when I was really intensely thrifting on a regular basis, I, the stuff would get washed and then put in those boxes, um, just kind of crammed together. And, but sometimes you, I would go out and find something really spectacular and wash it and then sort of hang it up and look at it for a while and try to figure out what that was going to become. And other times I was out, you know, I was working on something that I knew needed, um, you know, flowers or something yellow or a particular, um, pattern and I would go out looking for that and then come home and cut it up and put it right to use. Right. Uh, another great tip if you're looking for found embroidery is, um, I've found a lot of great things on eBay and, um, you can search on eBay. I think for old quilts too, you can search like this. Um, the search word is cutter lot, C U T T E R. And then you can, you know, a case of things, a box, big box of things that are worn and tattered, but the embroidered part on most of those things is not so worn and tattered. It's the tattered. It's the fabric around it. Right, which is why it's called a cutter lot. That makes exactly. total sense. Yeah. Uh, that's a great tip for people, totally. And I think if you were to buy, you know, like um, like one of those priority mail size, um, you know, boxes or whatever of a cutter mm-hmm. lot from eBay, I mean, you could use that and make all the projects from your book with just one box like that and some probably, things that you yeah. already have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could make some awesome stuff. I mean, that would that's so cool. What a neat you know, sort of to get these art supplies, kind of like a surprise box in the mail. Yeah. Those cutter lots, when I was working on a few really big pieces a while ago and I bought a lot of those and I got kind of hooked on buying them. It was like the, like a grab bag of candy when you're a little kid or something, because get the box and just tear it open oh, and totally. sort through it. It's so <laughs> much fun. There's nothing like a gift that you buy yourself like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, speaking of little fun gifts, the, one of the coolest things about your book, and I'm really looking forward to getting the print copy of your book is that, um, at the back, I think it's at the back, there's a, an actual pre-printed embroidery sampler, similar to the drop cloth samplers. And it's like, you can just pull it out and then you can start stitching on it. And I think that is so cool and so special and unusual. And I wondered if, having that was part of the plan from the beginning, like when you were first sort of sketching out ideas for the book, were you like, Ooh, you know, or, or did somebody suggest this? Like, how did that, that idea come about? Um, I can't remember how that idea came about. I know that it's been around for a while and the sampler went through a few different iterations, um, before we, we decided on that particular design. Um, do you want to describe what the design looks like? Yeah. So the sampler, um, uh, when you're looking at the cover of the book, you can see it's a black cover and then um, you look through the letters that make up the title of the book and you can see um, a preview of the sampler. So it's a round, it's sort of like a pie chart and there are nine sections of the pie and in each section of the pie is a different stitch. So they all sort of radiate out. Um and all the stitches are included and illustrated in the first chapter of the book, as well as um, pictures, uh, finished pictures of the sampler. And there's a beautiful photograph. Um, Johnny Miller took the pictures for the book, and I, he did an amazing job. And um, there's a, a photo of the backside of the sampler, which I was excited to include in the introduction. And, um, so that actually brings me to back to what we were talking about before about the kind of stodgy, I don't know, uptight, um, view that, um, yes. embroidery maybe has in people's minds that, you know, it must be perfect. And you kind of have an, uh, an image of these sort of, right. you know, New England ladies, um, practicing yes. their perf- perfectly spaced stitches and the back has to look as, as good as the front with no knots and everything. And so, right. um, and I feel like, you know, not to say that your work isn't perfect or that you don't have all the techniques down because you certainly do, but I also feel like you have a, a, a very sort of free style where, you know, it can be busy, it can overlap, um, you know, and it can, uh, it can just sort of be a little crazy. And I, uh-huh. and I wonder whether, um, you know, what, what was it about looking at the back or having that photo of the back of the sampler that's included? Like, what does the back look like? Like, was it, you know, is it, 
Is it crazy or is it perfect? No, it's not perfect at all. And that's partly why I wanted to include it because it, it often happens when I'm teaching workshops that I'll, uh, especially a, you know, a basic two or three hour workshop where I'm introducing new stitches to people where I'll be walking around the classroom just to check on how everyone's doing and someone will quickly hold their um, fabric to their chest and say, oh, I, I would hate for you to see it. It looks so messy. And it, it cracks me up every time because I, I always say, well, look at the back of mine. It's messy, but the front looks great. Or maybe the front also looks messy because that's the aesthetic that I like. Um, so I think, you know, embroidery's reputation is, is, has been building for a long time and people really expect it to be a, a certain way and I think people come to my workshops to loosen up and even people who say at the beginning I'm here because I want to loosen up it's it's hard because we have the sort of preconceived ideas of what embroidery is meant to look like so I wanted to include that picture as a way um, especially in the introduction to 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 so that people that are reading the book can notice that there are are big knots and kind of sloppy um, things going on on the back, but that the, you know, it's the backside. Most people won't see it unless you choose to show them. Right, right, mm-hmm. exactly. And you are choosing to show them in for a particular yeah. reason. Right. Um, and so when, and your, your artwork, the gallery work that, mm-hmm. you know, the pieces that you make that are shown in art galleries, um, yeah. you know, they are very, as you said, you have an aesthetic that's more, like more is more. Um, yes. and so, um, and so they do get busy. I mean, you're, you're, you're sewing one thing on top of another with machine stitches and hand stitches on top of those. And I wonder, um, with so many patterns and lines, sort of overlaid, what are some of the things that you do to kind of calm things down or guide, you know, the viewer's eye, like through a piece so that they can kind of make sense of it? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, um, I'm not sure. I think that my artwork often makes use of repetition. So there, you know, uh, there's, you know, multiple things on the page that repeat that kind of guide your eye um, to a focal point. Most of the time in the pieces that I'm making, there is a focal point. Sometimes it, t- it takes a while for me to arrive on it and then um, spend more time sort of figuring out how to make the composition work to pay attention to that focal point. Um, yeah, so I, the pieces, people often ask me if I know what my artwork's going to look like before I start, if I have a sketch of the overall piece, and I almost never do. I, I, I usually, I might have a rough idea of what it's going to look like, but I more often than not just kind of dive in, and there might be, a, you know, one image on the fabric, that, it, and then I keep sort of adding to um, over time. And as you can imagine, since they're embroidered, they take a long time to make. So, you know, in one image, um, I might, there might be an image on one piece of fabric that, that then gets added to another artwork and they're back and forth between, um, there's always a, what I'm trying to say is there's always a lot of artworks going on at once and they kind of feed each other. So, um, for, uh, for example, I was working on a couple pieces a few years ago that had a giant illustration of chain stitch. So, and that was on one piece. And then th- that part of that piece kind of got obliterated and the chain stitch didn't show anymore because there was all this pattern going on over the top of it. But that became a really focal, a, a big focal point of another piece I was working on. So, um, they've just developed kind of intuitively over time with a sort of additive process. Yeah, right. And it sounds like having multiple ones going at once helps to sort of bring your ideas across from one to another and keep, yes. keep things moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and where do you work now? So I know you, you live in Brooklyn um, and you have yeah. a, a studio outside of your home because I'm imagining a Brooklyn apartment is not so big. Yes, I have a studio um, in that's also in Brooklyn, so it's about a mile from my house. So I'm I'm very lucky that I can walk to work. And the studio that I run my business from one side of the studio, and then the other side of the studio is where I make my artwork. So it all hap- it's all all the embroidery is happening in the same place, but sort of two different realms. Okay, and is it a big space? Um, it's. It's pretty big, yes. I mean, by New York, as a, as a New Yorker, it feels really big. So I think it's probably about, 
um, how big is it? It's probably about 12 by 18. Okay. Yeah. So it's really sunny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have your computer there as well as your machine and all your fabrics and, and floss and things. Yes. I, well, I do most of my computer work, um, at home and then the, I have an old laptop that I use to fill orders with, um, at the studio and then, um, and then, but I have my machine there and all my fabrics and things like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. A big drawing table. Okay. And we're going to talk about those orders in a little bit, but first I want to get, yeah. um, to talk a little bit about the floss that you use. So, um, so oh, you like pearl cotton, um, and as opposed to sort of the, the traditional six strand embroidery floss, is that right? Um, for, for hand embroidery, I use a lot of different threads, but my favorite is pearl cotton size, size eight pearl cotton. And that's what I love too. I have to say, I just bought a whole great? bunch more of it and I love it because number one, it doesn't get tangled. Yes, I exactly. Find, oh my gosh. Cause if you're pulling off, you know, two or three strands or four strands from a six strand length of embroidery floss, mm-hmm. all the other strands end up in this ball. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's in- terrible. And I love, I love that pearl cotton doesn't do that. And also it's a little yeah. bit like glossy, I find, yes. which I love. And when I stitched your sampler, I stitched your sampler, your drop cloth sampler, one of them last summer. Mm-hmm. And I kind of tried a bunch of different things and I, I ended up doing almost all of it in pearl cotton. Cause I was yeah. just like, this is what I can handle. <laughs> this is so much yeah. better. And I wondered if you, um, so you, I want to hear a little bit about, um, you know, what kind of collection of pearl cotton you have and, um, and how you store it. And also whether you use, um, any thread conditioner, like I use thread heaven, which I, mm. I love and kind of coats it and makes it even less likely to tangle. And I wonder yes. if you use that. Um, I don't use that very often. If I'm using embroidery floss, I would more often use thread heaven, which works really well or, um, beeswax. I, I more just use beeswax to get the thread through the needle if I'm having a hard time threading it. Um, but I, I don't really use embroidery floss that often because it's such a pain in the rear to use. And it, I feel like it slows me down. Um, there's another thread that DMC makes, which is difficult to find, but it is a joy to stitch with. And it's called, I believe, I'm not sure how, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I think it's pronounced floche, F-L-O-C-H-E. And it's about the same. It's it's dull in sheen in finish, like per, like embroidery floss, um, but it's not as thick. It's it's about as thick as two strands of embroidery floss, which is the, a great amount to use. I don't. Whoever came up with six strand floss and then told everyone they should use two or three strands. Why? Why not just make two or three strand floss? It's ridiculous. Yeah. So <laughs> I've never heard of flow shirt, or if we're saying it that way, right? Yeah. Um, I've never heard of that, but that does actually sound like a product that's doing that, that's taking the six strand yeah. floss apart. It, it It's not quite the same as six strand floss. There are a couple companies, um, Weeks Dye Works out of um, North Carolina, they they make a two strand floss, which comes on a, like a spool of thread and it's easy to work with. And it, it comes in beautiful hand dyed colors. The disadvantage to it, as I see it, is that it's not color fast. So the dyes, um, they do tend to run if you get your fabric wet, which can be very troublesome. Um, and then Valdani, uh, makes a two strand floss as well. Of course, they're both much more expensive than six strand floss. That's the least expensive thing you could embroider with. Right. Right. I feel like the six strand floss is what you're going to find most commonly at an arts and crafts store. Yes. And maybe you already have some at your house. So yeah. that's the more, the cheapest, most readily available, especially if you want a huge range of colors. You know, I'm mm-hmm. imagining the DMC display at Joanne's where they have like a yes. hundred something more, more than that colors to pick from. Um, whereas, um, even pearl cotton, sometimes it's a little harder to find those it choices. It is hard to find. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but well worth it. And so how do you store your pearl cotton? Well, I have a lot of it. Um, I have, so I store it in sort of, um, shoebox size Rubbermaid tubs by color. Okay. So I, you know, I have a red box and an orange box and a pink box, et cetera. But I also, um, I have, so I work at the studio and that's where most of my things are, but I have a teeny tiny little drop down desk that was my great grandmother's that is kind of my, miniature home studio and I have these old um they're old tins that candy came in um 
from Russell Stover and they're kind of flat and they are the perfect height for storing about 20 spools of pearl cotton. So I have a little home stash. Yeah. Which in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I think about moving my studio out of my house, which would be nice, you know, in the long term, um, I do worry like, well, what if I need my things and I don't have them? So yeah. it sounds yeah. like you, you've got some things still at home, which is good. Yes. Yeah. Nice. There's nothing like embroidering in a really comfortable chair, um, <laughs> which I don't have a, a great overstuffed chair at the studio at this moment. So I, I often do that at home. So it sounds like embroidery hasn't become so much of a job for you that you just can't do it for pleasure anymore. It sounds like you're still able to say, you know, I'm working on that for work, but I want to also work on this for me. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I find myself going to the studio these days. I've been really busy gearing up for the book, um, for the book's release next month, but I've been going in on the weekends to the studio, not working on marketing, not working on my business, not working on anything, but just going in to work on my artwork. And that's been feeling so good just to get back to that after a long time of, of working on, on other things, which are also embroidery, but it feels really different going in there just to, to play and, and to work on my artwork. Yeah. It's a balance. And sometimes you really have to, um, you know, set up structure to ensure that yes. you do still have time because what ends up happening is the business takes over and the art yes. suffers. And even, you know, and that, and that hurts in two ways. I mean, it hurts sort of from a personal perspective, because you just so enjoy it and love it mm-hmm. and find it to be such a release. But also because if you don't continue to make great things, things don't propel forward as far exactly. as your career. You know, you right. have to continue to make creative work as well. Yes. So that's tricky. Um, so let's talk about kind of the business part of, of what you do, which is beyond the workshops um, and the fine art, which mm-hmm. is drop cloth. Um, mm-hmm. These are pre-printed sampler cloths that you make and you sell um, on Etsy is where you sell them. Am I right? You don't have another e-commerce. It's just Etsy. Just Etsy. Okay. And then um, I also sell wholesale in a few different stores in the U.S., all right, cool. So, so you sell wholesale, um, as well. Okay. And so what I was curious about is how you're printing them because it sounds like, I mean, the business is, is doing well. The samplers are doing well. Um, and I wondered how you're creating them. Are they screen printed? Are you having them printed by, you know, by a screen printer for you? Or are you, you know, printing them at Spoonflower? How are you make getting them, your drawings onto, onto the, the cloth? Um, well, I am drawing, they're, they're my drawings. They're drawn on paper with, um, uh, pencil and pen and gouache, sometimes watercolor. And then I'm working with another company that's printing them for me. When I started out, I was printing them myself. Um, when I lived in Chicago, I had a, access to a much bigger studio, which had amazing screen printing capabilities. And since I moved to New York, I have a lot less space for that kind of thing. So I, um, I draw them and then I work with another company that prints them for me. And the exciting thing about that is that it's opened up the possibility of adding a lot more color. And so that since, um, in the last year, the color burst series developed, which has been a lot of fun. Those are so much, I look so forward to stitching those every month. They're really, um, super duper colorful and okay, so they really have, reflective of my personal aesthetic. Right. So they have almost like, um, almost a wash of color right behind mm-hmm. the different sections of the sampler or of the piece of stitch, not really a sampler, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're all they're They're the backgrounds are painted with, um, watercolor and gouache paints and, um, colored pencils. And then they get translated into a print, but they're so, I'm having so much fun drawing those. And that, that series is just going to keep going on. I don't know how long, but for, for at least another year or so, um, having a lot of fun developing them. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, you know, if you had stayed, um, in Chicago, for example, and had, had been able to continue to screen print them yourselves, um, in some ways it would have been limiting because you would have known that, you know, you could only expand as far as you could produce um, exactly. yourself. Whereas once you hire that portion out, it's actually really freeing. Things can grow and you can produce more designs. So, um, yes. yeah. So working in collaboration with a screen printing company makes you actually 
better off in this way? It's been great. It's, I, I was really hesitant to do it. And bef- right before I moved to Chicago, I was getting up every morning um, at five in the morning and riding my bike to this screen printing studio and printing as many as I could before I had to go to work and then hopping on my bike with this, I had this bike with huge baskets on the back and a huge basket on the front and I'd ride back to my apartment and iron them all and get them all ready. So I moved to Chicago with hundreds of samplers ready to sell, which was so ridiculous. And then, but as soon as I made the leap to, um, to outsource the printing, it's been a huge relief. Yeah. And, yeah. I think that's really useful for people to hear um, that, you know, you don't have to do everything yourself and still have a really awesome handmade business. And in fact, you know, your business can grow if you decide yes. to work with, with, with someone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. So one of the things I think is really neat, or oh, two things. One is that you do a, a really effective um, uh, sort of marketing reach with social media, um, especially it seems like on Thank Instagram. You. Yeah, with Instagram, with hashtags. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you um, encourage people. I know when I first, I think I took a picture of my sampler in progress and I put it on Instagram and I tagged you and you were like, you know, use my hashtag so that when you share, we can all see it. And I was like, oh, sure, you know, no problem. And then, of course, searched the hashtag and saw everybody's work and was totally excited that a million people were working on the same thing I was working on. And so I just wonder how, like, what is your hashtag and what is your system for helping people to know to use it? Well, um, I'm still, I'm always trying to figure out those systems and I, you know, it's, it's so challenging running a, a one person business and it's all trial and error. And for a while I was trying to guide everyone towards Flickr and then I realized Flickr was kind of dead. And so, um, I'm very excited about Instagram right now. So when people get a sampler, when they order a sampler from Etsy, they get a message from me, um, thanking them and letting them know about my Instagram feed, which often has pictures of, um, uh, samplers that are in progress or, you know, the design board or things like that. And then letting them know that they can also search the drop cloth samplers hashtag and see how other people are completing the same sampler that they're about to receive. And then I try to let people know that I love to see samplers in progress, even if it's just the sampler in their hoop with all their threads. It's so much fun to see how people, different people organize their threads and what kind of scissors they have. I mean, I, I know that I'm such a sucker for sewing notions and, um, just, it's so much fun to see people's tabletops and spaces and, and how they're working. So I check that hashtag every day. And when there's a new one, it brings a smile to my face. I love that people are using it. Yeah. So I, I think a couple important things to pull out there. One is that you're asking people to do it, you know, so you're not just like expecting them to sort of read your mind and find it. You're saying, right. you know, Hey, thanks for buying this. If you want to share what you're working on, here's a way to do that. And second is that you're actively engaging with it. So as soon as somebody, you're, you just said, you check it every day. So as soon as somebody's going to post something, you're going to be like, oh, awesome. It looks great. And, you know, maybe repost it on your page or whatever so that people know mm-hmm. you, the designer, are acknowledging their work and are excited for them and are, you know, interacting with everybody. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think I love that about Instagram. It's yeah. so easy to, to have a quick conversation with people and people can ask questions. And I, I love to answer questions like that on Instagram, but so do other people that are working on it or, you know, someone will say, I'm not sure, quite sure what color to use or what stitch should I use? And people will you know, offer their ideas and suggestions, which is so much fun. Right. And it really becomes a community of people there, which is so Mm -hmm. nice. Um, And then the other thing that I think is neat that you're doing, and I wanted to hear a little bit about like the nerdy back end, (laughs) is is the subscription club. So you have a few different subscription clubs available um, that you sell on your Etsy shop where, you know, people can get um, a new pre-printed cloth to stitch every three months or throughout a whole year even. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered, um, with Etsy, I feel like they don't really 
set things up to make it easy for the business owner to run a subscription club. Like there's not like a, you know, a checkbox or something like that where, you know, customers can check it off. I mean, it's really something where the customer buys it and then you have to, in some way, I'm imagining like a, a, a giant Excel spreadsheet, like add their mm-hmm. name That's exactly and then what remember it is. to bill them on PayPal or set it up as a PayPal. I mean, PayPal helps you with PayPal mm-hmm. um, subscriptions, but you have to kind of pop on over there and, and do that. Am I right? Like, how, So how are you managing the back end of these subscriptions? Well, um, one thing, I didn't know PayPal had a subscription feature, so that's something I'm going to research this they afternoon. Do. <laughs> they do. And in fact, I don't know if you have WordPress for your uh, website, but uh, WordPress has a bunch of subscription plugins that can handle this oh. stuff too. I'm just learning about this stuff now <laughs> myself. So just, I can't give you like professional advice, but. Um, so the, the way that I manage the subscriptions is that people um, purchase a subscription on Etsy, just like they would purchase anything else. So they purchase a three month, a six month or a 12 month subscription. And they, they pay like you'd pay for a magazine subscription up front. They pay upfront for the subscription and for the shipping. So, um, and then that information gets added to a giant spreadsheet, um, that, and I actually use, um, Google docs for my spreadsheet so that I can access it when I'm traveling from my iPad and from my home computer and my work computer. And that, that just works really well for me. Um, and then, yeah, so I manage from the subscription, and then each month they get a new subscription in the mail or a new sampler in the mail around the 15th of every month. I spend a day or two packaging those all up and shipping them out around the world. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, that's intense. Um, and when the fabric comes, I'm just curious, when the fabric comes from the screen printer, do you have to cut mm-hmm. all of it? Yes, it comes by the yard. Okay. And, um, and, so yeah, it gets cut up into squares and, and about, I think it was about a year ago. I was so, sometimes I, you know, I don't know if this is, I was going to say like most people, but maybe it's just me that's really stubborn. And so for years I was cutting them all out just with scissors, cutting them, cutting them, cutting them and getting a hand cramp. And then, and my mom, who's a, a great quilter kept saying, you know, I think it'd be easier if you had a rotary cutter. I think, no, I don't, I don't need a rotary cutter, but I got a rotary cutter last year about this time. And Boy, it has sure made life a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you use a big like acrylic ruler and a rotary cutter? Yes, and I have a hand grip thing for the acrylic um, ruler so that it doesn't slip. And I have a giant cutting mat and that's at a perfect standing height in the studio. Um, yeah, so I and I, it's a pain to cut them all out, so I try to do a lot at once and get them sort of ready so I don't have to do it very often because it's also the same surface that I like to draw on. So I try not to get out the cutting mat too often. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good time to listen to podcasts. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> exactly what I like to do. And NPR is almost always on, but when it gets old, I listen to a lot of podcasts yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Those repetitive tasks that are an inevitable part of, um, maybe of any business, but certainly of a handmade business. Yes. Um, for sure. That's like, turn on the podcast. That's what I yeah. do. <laughs> and the, so the subscriptions have been great because so uh, getting back to yeah. this sort of nerdy conversation, <laughs> I sort of think of them as a CSA for my business or as a CSA model. So people, um, especially the color burst subscription. So people are subscribing, you can join at any time and, but they're saying, I want to receive these for, for 12, for three months or six months or 12 months or however long they're going to receive them. And so they're paying me up front. Um, and then, and I'm sending them something throughout the year, but you know, that gives me, um, uh, a, a, I think the, the term, cash flow yeah, I think the term is float, right? It gives yeah. you float, right? So you have the money now that you need right. to use to invest in materials and supplies and all the other things that are coming up later. Yes, exactly. It's been really great. Versus I think there's other people, I know there are other people who I've talked to for my blog and things who have subscription services where the, the, um, the customers build monthly. So, you know, your, your, your bill now or your, you know, then your bill next month and, and the, mm-hmm. the following month where you're running it so that, you know, if, if the full total for the year is a hundred dollars, you pay the hundred dollars now and then you enjoy it for the whole year. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so you get that float in the beginning, which is, mm-hmm. there's definitely something to be said for that from a financial standpoint. Right. Um, interesting. And I, and maybe also from a tax standpoint, 
I don't know. Like when somebody pays you in one year and you're giving them uh, things in another year. That I don't know about, but oh, anyway. that's an interesting question. I'll have to bring to my accountant <laughs> am, next year. I am not an accountant, but I do wonder if there's some tax implications there. I have to think about that. Um, cool. cool. So, all right. Question. So, I want to oh, I want to talk about um, a creative bug, which we touched on in the beginning, um, yeah. and it sounds like has led. I mean, sort of in in some way led to to this beautiful book that you've created. <laughs> um, and nice. um, and so you know, you were teaching in person classes for many years before you began teaching online. Um, now I think you have nine creative bug classes The last time I I was over there looking. Um, yeah. And so I just wondered, um, you know, so how did you first begin working? Let's start there working with creative bug. Did they find you, um, or did you reach out to them or did you meet somebody who knew somebody? I mean, how did that happen? They contacted me. I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how they knew about my work. I think it was a recommendation from a friend, Cal Patch, who we, uh, I had met teaching, um, we were teaching at workshops at the same place one summer. Um, and so they, Cal was filming workshops and I think she recommended me. I'm not really sure. And at the time I was in, I had a residency at the museum of art and design in New York. So the creative bug came to visit my studio there, which was great. They happened to be in New York filming. I think they were filming some Heather Ross workshops or something here in the city. And they, that we met and we really hit it off. And so it's, it's been great. I've had so much fun filming those workshops and it's, um, the first workshop we filmed was based on the first sampler that I designed, which has been a great sort of symbiotic relationship between the sampler and the workshop. And they sort of feed off of each other. Um, yeah, I definitely think that they do because so my sister, um, is six years younger than me. And I, um, after I did your first sampler, the first drop cloth sampler that I bought, I bought one for her and she's crafty too, but she also works full time and, you know, crafting is not her full time job like it mm-hmm. is for me. So it's been a while. And, um, and so I was like, you know, if you, uh, aren't really sure, you know, what all these stitches are that are, are marked on here, you know, you can go and, and watch Rebecca's creative bug workshop because she shows you this exact sampler and how right. to do it. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of like it enhance they they enhance one another um yeah. so if you get it and you're not sure you can go and find out or if you watch if you start on creative bug and then want the exact sampler to stitch along you can have that right exactly yeah and the book it's almost the same way where you're getting you know you have the first chapter devoted to the sampler and then the sampler is right there exactly it's right there you don't have to do any transferring no ironing you just pop it in a hoop and you're ready to go right Right, right, right. So, um, let's just talk about transferring as our last sort of, um, okay. thing before we go on to recommendations. Cause I think that's something that a lot of people worry about. They're like, well, you know, I don't know how to, um, to transfer if I draw, you know, my sketchbook, um, or even if I have a motif that I've, you know, found somewhere that I want to, to embroider, how do I get that, you know, onto the fabric? I mean, you solve that problem with these, uh, pre-printed fabrics, but if yeah. somebody wants to, to do it on their own, what do you recommend as far as um, as tracing? Sort of maybe maybe the, the low the low tech kind of uh, cheap way, and then maybe uh-huh. you want to actually invest in something uh, you know a specialty supply or whatever. If you're really into it, what what would you recommend? Well, good question. The book introduces I think four or five different ways, but the the cheapest way is to trace your image, whatever it is, if it's your drawing or a drawing from a book or text or something, trace it onto. Um, tracing paper with a dark pencil or a dark marker and then tape your tracing paper to a bright window and then tape your fabric assuming you're using a light fabric this doesn't really work with a dark fabric um, tape your fabric over it and then just draw with so easy no materials required except tracing paper um, draw with a pencil or or an erasable marker right onto your fabric and then just stitch through those lines. And most pencils will brush off once you're finished embroidering them or erase off. Um, they're pretty forgiving. Um, the, if, if you want to spend a little, a very little amount of money to get my favorite 
transfer material, you could use this product made by Sulky, which is called Sulky Salvi, and it's a water water soluble transfer material that looks a lot like tracing paper or sheer plastic, but it's actually completely water soluble. So you use it in the same way you'd use tracing paper. You can trace anything onto it, and then you lay that or tape it or baste it onto a piece of fabric, stitch through it, and when you're finished stitching, the transfer material um, completely dissolves in water. And it's amazing. I've used it before, and it is amazing. Um, I'm, like, entirely dependent upon it now. So I refuse to embroider if I don't have that. Yeah, me too. I use it all the time in my artwork. And it's great because you can use it over the top of something that is – you could use it on dark fabric. You can use it on highly patterned or textured or even already embroidered fabrics. It's it's awesome. Yeah. It's my favorite. It's my favorite product. Yeah, me too. I, I think I only have one. You can also run it through your printer or the kind I have, you can run through your printer. Um, and so, oh. yeah, like it comes in, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets or whatever. So you can just run it through your printer. And, um, and so I've done that a bunch of times. Anyway, I only have like one full sheet left and I'm like, I gotta go get more. Is that the new, I think that company, they sent me a bunch of Sulky Salvi for a giveaway that we're going to have when the book comes out, but they sent me some that's called Sticky Salvi that's printable. Okay. I haven't tried it yet. I just got it in the mail. I can't wait to try that. Yeah. Mine is the sticky kind. So you peel the paper off and you just stick the, um, yeah, it's almost like a sticker and then you embroider through it and then that sticker dissolves in water. Come on. Okay, great. I can't wait to try that. (laughs) Wow. That and Thread Heaven and Pearl Cotton made me, convinced me that I like embroidery. So. Yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, totally. All right. So let's jump into some of your recommendations. Um, you have a couple of cool things to recommend. And I think, I think we're going to start with picture files. This is something very, um, sort of low tech, no tech, um, Hmm. and free and, um, a neat way to get some inspiration. So tell us about that. Yeah, a good transition from talking about transferring too, because oh, true. <laughs> sometimes people are like, what should I embroider? And, you know, there's so many great images online, but um, one of my favorite things to do and a great way to spend an afternoon is to go to your library. And most big libraries and even some small libraries have these incredible collections of pictures that they've collected over the years. And uh, when I lived in Chicago, I spent a lot of time in the picture files and New York Public Library also has an amazing collection. So they're organized by category in giant file folders. So, and it depends on the library, how they're organized. But for example, you know, you might look at, um, bridges and they might be further organized by New York bridges and Boston bridges and, uh, uh, you know, international bridges. And in those folders, I, I mean, the way I imagine it is there are these little old ladies that sit at a desk with glue pots and brushes and scissors that are, um, collecting things that it might be, you know, images cut from magazines and from the cover of a, um, a playbill from a musical or a post, an old postcard and things. Um, most, you know, I think the image collections in New York are from the last, it's a century of collecting and you can make photocop black and white or color photocopies. And in many cases you could check out those images and take them with you to take them home and draw from them. I tend to not check them out because I'm nervous that I'll forget them and rack up a library fine, but I just bring lots of dimes and and take lots of photocopies when I'm there. But I've found so many great uh, images for my artwork um, in that way, just searching. Things that you would never find online. Yeah. it's like oh. Google image. It's like Google doing a Google image search, but manually. Yeah. And it's unbelievable that these, these, that there were staff people who were, I, I mean, I wonder if that's still going on. Are they still? That's a good question. Them? If that's still a job. I mean, yeah. what a fun job that would be. Just yeah. Sort through this pile of stuff and organize it categorically. <laughs> I would love that job. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Yeah, if they, they do seem, I've spent more time at the image files in Chicago than here in New York, but they, the images do tend to feel sort of dated. Like they don't feel like they're continually updated. And I hope it's something that, that stays around because it's such an, it's just such an incredible resource. Yeah, that's so good to know about and something you would need to know to ask for it. Like, yeah. do you have picture files? Can I, you know, can I go in and look at them? And, 
Um, who knew that they were even there? So, right. And things that you would find, you know, like, um, in antique shops, like the cover of life magazine from when the man landed on the moon. Um, but you, you know, anyone could go and look at that at the library. That's so cool. Make of copy. Yeah. Yeah. Be special. That's, that is really special. Um, and you also wanted to recommend these super tiny embroidery hoops that are so cool. So tell us about those and have you played with them? I just got a box of them in the mail last night from Australia. So it's this small company called Dandelion. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Hoops. And they're miniature hoops. They're not meant to be stitched in, but they're meant to mount your work in when you're finished. So they range in size from about the size of a quarter to about the size of a 50 cent piece. And then, so your fabric, you would embroider it in a normal size hoop and then cut it out, sort of mount it in this little hoop. Um, and then either glue a pin back on or, or attach it to a chain. And the kit comes with both pin backs and a chain. Um, and they're really beautiful hand finished hardwood. Um, and I, as I said, I love things that are really dense and I love the idea of making an embroidery that's just overflowing with, you know, like maybe just, just French knots, but like hundreds of French knots crammed into a little space that becomes a beautiful little brooch. Um, there's actually a project in the book that we use old, um, uh, Bakelite belt buckles that I, that we took the centers out of. Um, but these hoops would work perfectly for that project and they're ready made with no sawing required. Right, right, right. (laughs) That's cool. Um, yeah, that's a neat project from the book as well. Um, because one of the problems sometimes I've personally encountered with embroidery, um, is what am I going to do with this? You know, like you're going to spend time making it and that's super pleasurable and fun. And you're basically drawing on fabric with the thread and it, it's awesome. And then you're finished, you know, and you have a thing and it's flat and Mm -hmm. it's like, um, often it's on a smaller piece of fabric that you've like cut down to fit in the hoop. Um, so it's not like a giant, you know, yardage, um, that you could like make a dress out of or something like that. So you're like, well, what am I going to do with this? It's like a patch, you know, like, um, and so, so, you know, making it into a brooch, that's a great idea. It's a good way to do it. Do you have other, you know, clearly you could make it into fine, a piece of fine art, like something you could hang on the wall. Um, but do you have any other sort of brilliant thoughts for what you can do with your embroidery when you're done with it? Well, that, uh, I attempt to answer that question in the book in multiple ways, because that is the number one question that people ask me in these longer workshops that I teach where we make these experimental embroideries and people will say, well, what do I do with it now? And for years I would say, well, just hang it up on your wall. It looks amazing. Um, but you know, I think that a a lot of people are interested in, in making it into something that's a little more finished. So, um, you know, there are a lot of easy ways, even if you are going to hang it on a wall, there are ways to make it look a little more professional, like stretching it on stretcher bars, um, that are traditionally used for painting canvases that are actually really inexpensive and easily purchased for not much money at the art supply store. Um, Sometimes it's nice to put grommets in something to make it easy to hang on the wall. We show how to do that in the book. Um, uh, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. And also, you know, obviously you can applicate it onto something. Yes. Uh, yeah, that could be a nice idea too, especially something that is small. You know, you could applicate onto a, a sweater or a blouse. I think embroidery is an amazing addition to a quilt that you're making even just a, you know, a small area of the quilt that has a dense little area of embroidery or even I'm putting my own aesthetic on it. It doesn't have to be so dense. Of (laughs) course, not everyone has to embroider in the crazy dense way that I do, but yeah, I think embroidery is a beautiful addition to a garment or, um, the, you know, the corner of a, of a quilt. Right. Absolutely. Mm. So there's lots of different ways that you can use it once you're you're finished with it. Um, which yeah. Is, yeah. That's fun to think about. So you have a couple of shows coming up and workshops coming up. And I just wanted to see if you would tell us about those in case people who are local might want to, you know, come and meet you and, and actually see your work and learn from you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I have a show that's up right now at the San Jose Museum of Quilts and Textiles in California. And I'm teaching a workshop there um, related to the pieces that are up in the show on um, March 19th 
excuse me, April 19th, coming up quickly. And then on uh, March 18th, the day before that, I'll be teaching a workshop in Oakland at A Verb for Keeping Warm, one of my favorite stores. And that night, um, uh, April 18th, is the official book release party. So everyone's welcome to come to that. It's a free event, and we're gathering up stuff for some swag bags, which will be really fun. Um, and is that also at a verb for keeping warm? That's at a verb for keeping warm awesome. too. Yeah. And then the following Monday at a verb for keeping warm on the 20th, I'm teaching, um, a long afternoon workshop that's based on the book sampler. So I'll show all the stitches from the sampler and we can all hang out and work on that in the afternoon in their beautiful, sunny Oakland space. Um, and then the other, uh, art exhibit that I'm in uh, opens on June 15th at the, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, but museum, um, at, at an art museum in the Netherlands, uh, when that opens on June 15th. That's the Textile Biennale. Okay, nice. Super. Congratulations for all these fun upcoming things that coincide Thank you. with the book. And yeah, you're a busy person. <laughs> oh, and one more thing I wanted sure. to mention for yeah. Portland listeners is that on uh, April 25th, I'll be in Portland doing a, a demo, a transfer demo and a book signing at Collage PDX in Portland on Saturday the 25th. Nice. Super. So it's mm-hmm. great because even though you're in New York, you are traveling around a little bit and so more people can get to see you and meet you or even just see your work without you being right there. Yeah. Yeah. My work's traveling farther than I am. Right. I was going to the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. sometimes yeah. <laughs> so where can we connect with you online? Well, you can connect with me on Instagram and my handle, if you call it a handle, I think you do, is at drop cloth all one word. And then the website for the business is dropclothsamplers.com. And then my artwork is at rebeccarinquist.com. Okay, super. All right. Well, Rebecca, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you, Abby. Okay, cool. So you've been listening to the Walsh Naps podcast and I'm Abby Glassenberg. I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and see you next time.